Hi, good evening. Um, welcome to the National Academy. I'm Marshall Price, the Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art, and welcome to the March installment of the review panel. Um, I just want to say before we begin that uh, there are some brochures in the back um, that have our public programs in conjunction with our 185th annual exhibition, which is currently on view. Uh, the galleries will be open until 9 o'clock this evening, so if you haven't seen the show, please um, take a stroll through them after the review panel, if, if, if you will. Uh, the moderator for the review panel is Mr. David Cohen. David is the gallery director at the New York Studio School. There's a wonderful exhibition up now on Dorothea Rockburn's astronomy drawings. So please go check that out if you, if you can. Um, and David is also the editor and publisher of artcritical.com. So with that being said, I'm going to hand it over to David and he will introduce tonight's uh, panelists. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you, Marshall and Linda and Camille and all the wonderful staff here at the Academy that make this event possible and are very generous hosts. Uh, is this, uh, do, do, let, do put your hands up if this is your first uh, review panel. Excellent. Okay. Well, welcome. Uh, let me very uh, succinctly, I hope, tell you how it works. Uh, you probably will have seen that we're covering four exhibitions. Uh, the panelists have been asked to go and see those exhibitions, and you'll soon discover in the process of discussion whether they have or not. And uh, we are reviewing the shows that, that the, the audience has had a chance to go and see as well. So the format is simplicity itself. We have beautifully prepared videos by Georgina Smith that we screen for the shows. Uh, we'll look at a couple of those and then we'll discuss them one by one among ourselves and in, then have a little moment to hear from any members of the audience who want to comment on the shows or our reviews of those shows. And then we repeat the exercise for the final two exhibitions. But first, it's my pleasurable task to introduce you to my guests this evening from my far left. Uh, Mark Stevens is a biographer and art critic. He was for many years uh, art critic for New York Magazine, uh, retiring a couple of years ago. Uh, before that, he was at the New Republic, and before that, at Newsweek. And he is the author, or rather the co-author with his wife, Annalyn Swan, of De Kooning, An American Master, the Pulitzer Prize-winning biography, and the team is at work on a biography of Francis Bacon. Might be a good moment to suggest that if you have a pager or cell phone, <laughs> which I, in fact, have not done myself, you should turn it off or silence it, or at least set a really beautiful tune as your... Ah... <laughs> uh, Michelle Kuo is a senior editor at Art Forum magazine, where she's been a contributor for a number of years. She's at work at a PhD at Harvard on uh, art and technology in the 1960s, uh, uh, Rauschenberg and his colleagues. Um, and she's a, a much sought-after 
essayist. She has essays forthcoming uh, at the Hayward Gallery in London and the Museum of Modern Art in Vienna. And David Levi Strauss is chair of the MFA program um, in art criticism and writing at the School of Visual Arts. He is a contributing editor and frequent contributor to Aperture magazine and the author of acclaimed books. Most recently, the, uh, out is From Head to Hand, Art and the Manual from Oxford, uh, soon to be soon we're to get a, a revised edition of his earlier volume um, uh, uh, Between Dog and Wolf Essays on Art and Politics and uh, his books also include Between the Eyes, Photography and Politics so ladies and gentlemen please welcome your panellists Great. Well, the first couple of shows we're going to look at are Mike Nelson at 303 Gallery and Joan Jonas at Yvonne Lambert. So if we could lower the lights and see the first couple of videos, that'd be very welcome. Double-click it, it should work. So let's look at Mike Nelson, at, at Joan Jonas as well, please. Thank you.
everybody approached with it, the less we know of general events, except for what we sometimes say by person. So, as you understand, our sense of So, two very different uh, examples of installation art. One, one sticking to the walls, the other eschewing them. One uh, offering us uh, medieval poetry, the other catapulting, catapulting us into a contemporary issue. Uh, um, perhaps, however, we could also find uh, th thematic and, um, uh, uh, and also thematic commonalities and also commonalities of facture between these two shows. But uh, let's begin our business uh, uh, panelists by, by thinking about them one at a time. And let's start with Mike Nelson. Um, what experience do we have with this piece uh, before, before, before trying to grasp its meaning uh, and putting together its clues? Uh, what's, what's the feel of being in this piece, Michelle? So the first time I went was during the opening night. There were tons and tons of people there. It was very um, packed, and you actually had to stand in line to enter this structure. So the feeling was actually quite claustrophobic, even more so than you might gather from just looking at this, um, this video. But you had to hunch down to enter on in this kind of precarious um, structure, and then you walked through essentially um, a rather mysterious space, but it's, if you, haven't seen the plan. It's essentially um, trailers that have been connected into um, a square. So you're walking around in, in sort of a, a circle. Um, but you're stooping through this very crowded or cramped space. And um, it really, I don't know, it gives you a feeling of what, to me, it was essentially very dystopian. Um, at a certain point, this, uh, this type of trailer promised a kind of mobility or freedom, and here it was um, sutured together into this uh, kind of oppressive and very intimate, however, space. And it was also comic, at least to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were marijuana leaf stencils on the walls, there are strange quilts, there were lots of detritus um, inside, and so you, it, it did speak to some kind of life having been lived in these structures. Right. Yes, they were. Uh, I had the experience, David, of, of, of the sensation of there being, of thinking, um, once I got over the shock of bashing my head twice on the, uh, <laughs> trying to negotiate that space and realizing I was probably not suited to trailer living. But I, 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 I didn't know time, you were so tall. Yes. <laughs> but uh, part of me was thinking, Gosh, actually, if this was cleaned up, it'd be a very beautiful uh, object. I mean, the, the, the upholstery, the woodwork, the ingenious use of space, reminding you of the, the cramped quarters of a, of a yacht, uh, were, were rather beautiful. But um, obviously, this is, uh, there's an aesthetics of squalor going on in, in this. Um, apart from that ov overriding kind of feeling that's a bit like being inside, what you're never really allowed to do is actually get inside an Edward Keenholz uh, uh, installation here, you, you could, and you were once in, you were trapped. 
Um, what about, however, the clues? Uh, uh, Michelle saw humor in them, but uh, uh, did you see humor in all those clues, or was it pointing to something uh, more sinister? Well, I think there, there certainly was humor in it, but uh, in the end, it was dystopian and pretty dark and prophetic, I would say. Um, I, I have to admit that I'm a, a kind of a sucker for that kind of maximalist forensic gearhead art. It's where I come from. Uh, and um, so I was in it from the moment I was at the opening also and then went back um, later when there was no one there uh, to follow the clues. Um, and I, I, I had missed his show, the thing that he did with Creative Time at the Essex uh, House, but I, 15 different people talked to me about it afterwards and, and told, uh, told me how um, struck they were by it. So I was prepared a little bit, mm. but um, <coughs> the clues, um, because of I mean, all this detritus that at first looks random, uh, when the clues start to come into focus, it, it becomes very, very focused. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a progression through, a narrative progression through, um, you know, you have a, a radio tuned to static that, and then in the last room, a, a TV tuned to static. And it's, I think it's unusual for a British artist to get this far into the uh, American psyche. Uh, and, and to me, that's what, that's what it was about. It was about um, American exceptionalism, adventurism, uh, and ultimately uh, the warlike, uh, the, the history of wars. I mean, there was, you know, it could have been, a couple of those trailers could have been uh, Vietnam veterans. Uh, uh -huh. That's funny, because um, Mark, I was picking, I was reading the clues very differently. I, I thought this was, um, this was uh, linking together the, the trailers of various, um, anarchists or jihadists who'd gone underground mm. and that this was uh, a, a guide through the sort of the labyrinth of the the terrorist imagination yeah. there was a lots of uh, uh, clues of uh, and then there was also drug there was drug use but there was also um, in 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 one quarter but in another there was a, a guidebook to India and a, a copy of Kropotkin and um, uh, various Islamic motifs as well did, uh, did the clues uh, add up to a, a specific meaning for you, or, would, or were you left with a generalized aesthetic you could share? Yes, I, I uh, well, initially, I, my initial response to many things is comic, and I, I thought, uh, well, Uma Thurman should show up and kill Bill. <laughs> I thought that was my, uh, there's a sort of uh, strange, gritty uh, uh, trailer, part trash, but violent undertone to the piece. Uh, that is a thing that, that is used again and again all across American culture in, in film as well as TV as well as art. So it has that feeling. It also, just to be arty about it, you know, I thought of Kabakov setting up environments uh, where people have been and have left clues about their background. I thought also of Keenholz as you did. But or then Desch I, or Deschamps' last work. Yeah. Uh, and the Etendonnet, yes. That, that attempt that many artists have made to, to, cr to create uh, environments that somehow become psychic uh, portraits of either a milieu or a person. And in here, I did notice there were a lot of Islamic Persian writing. Uh, you could ima well imagine this was a, a, a disconsolate American-born, probably, because of Fort Comanche was there, cartoons, things, who had been to India and, and traveled and dream were dreamed of traveling and 
but was involved with terrorism. I mean, I, there's clear links that, uh, or, that are little clues that are trying to make you think, I think, of uh, terrorist uh, mm -hmm. origins. Anyway, that was my response. Well, yeah, but at the same time, it's implausible they would be inhabiting this airstream. <laughs> I mean, that sure. was what was interesting, was that there were these kinds of, they, they seem more random to me than anything in the sense that if there's a linear narrative to be culled from those signs, it wasn't that they came into a neat sort of um, No, there's, you don't know portrait. what happened. Yeah. You don't know what happened, but when you see four, you see a knife, you know, a great big knife, you see the kind of uh, uh, grubbiness of it, then you see Fort Comanche, an American uh, version of uh, sort of s stupid <coughs> Western violence. But then you see these books, and these uh, mis uh, mysterious little things with Persian writing on them, and you don't know what that means. I mean, I don't, I can't read that. I think it's meant to imply, is this is some kind of foreign thing here? Is this what is? Well, there was per Persian music, a lot of Persian tapes. Right. Also, um, Hazrat uh, Eniat Khan's writing. I mean, the Persian theme really start, started very early and went all the way through to the end, which I think was, is the ultimate. I mean, I think it's, it's predicting uh, war with Iran, basically. Mm -hmm. I think that last room with the M16 uh, clips and uh, Donald Duck with a nasty head wound and uh, shrunken head, uh, that's, I mean, as, as the, clue, the clues came into focus for me more and more as a very strong narrative. Mm. Mm. But Michelle, it sounds like um, one of the things going on actually is, is uh, tearing us between uh, a literalist reading of this as almost a stage set of an actual trailer that uh, an individual might be inhabiting and this more, and that's like a sort of movie set, but also the more opera or theatre set that it's, uh, it's fanciful and it's uh, uh, an uh, uh, high artifice, but mixed with uh, a sort of uh, literalism as well. I mean, the, the way the clues are dispersed seem to me uh, uh, very considered. So it, it was distressed and scruffy and scr uh, looking rough, but the clues were almost like clues in a, the in, in a, a board game where you're supposed to work out where the murder Did you place. think they were leading you somewhere? Because I, I've only seen it once, and I, I, mm -hmm. I, I didn't really spend the time to think, to, is it going from A to B to C to D in any way? I don't, I mean. Well, it, oh, sorry, go ahead. go ahead. I was gonna say, it's in a circle, though. It's precisely, it's leading you in a right. circle. So to me, that mm -hmm. was what was interesting, is that it's detouring functionalism. It's the functionalist object that has been um, be made surreal or absurd, so that any mm -hmm. kind of literal narrative you would piece together. Well, it's not a trailer that's going to move very But easy. it's also, yeah. it's, the, it's the circled wagons. It's the circled oh, yeah. covered Sport wagons that are also, yeah. or, or spaceship, uh, covered wagons into space is basically the, I mean, it, it's, even that arrangement was very uh, telling, of, I, mm. for me, about the American psyche. And it's like the Pentagon as well. Yeah. <laughs> but not, hopefully the Pentagon's a little more high tech. I say hopefully, though. Uh, uh, but uh, coming back to this literal versus theatrical, uh, not, not that I'm trying to use those phrases in a loaded way, but um, coming, coming back to the stage set versus the movie set, um, uh, you say it's circular, Michelle, but obviously you have, you're forced in, in a particular way by 
by virtue of going in the steps. And most people would gravitate towards a clockwise rotation and, and then feel they've done it and go to the next show, wouldn't they? Uh, I mean, a, a very committed uh, fan or somebody reviewing the show might uh, go for a second or third lap. But um, it's kind of fair to feel that, it's, that there is a staged experience and uh, um, uh, unraveling of clues. Did, uh, um, uh, did, you, did you feel a sense of narrative of, of something getting hotter or, or more progressing towards something, or was it a, um, a sort of a unified experience that happened that, that evolves? I actually went the wrong way first when I went in because there were so many people and it was actually quite crowded. So, I, to me, it wasn't clear that there was one trajectory if it hadn't been for other people simply potentially moving in a way that they mm. thought was natural to them. So that is an interesting point in the sense that I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know. To me, it didn't feel like there was this progression um, towards some, you know, climax. But that may just be because mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I started off in a different in a different yeah. orientation. So. It's, it's the first work of his, David, that I've seen in the flesh, but judging from uh, books of his that I've studied, uh, there's a consistently squalid, uh, rough aesthetic in, in mm -hmm. his work and also um, a political pointedness, but without being um, partisan or particularly you know, li uh, to be read in one way or the other. Um, did, did you feel that he, you, you, you're, you're arguing that, that he's somebody who's penetrated the American psyche. Do you, do you feel that was, um, he's something he was setting out to do, or is that something that as an American you'll find yourself responding to? What is it that makes it so American? Is it that it is trailers? I mean, are, are trailers uniquely American? They may be. Um, I think it was the it was just a preponderance of evidence. I mean, mm -hmm. after I spent a long time in there and and read all the clues, and after a while, the clues came into focus as uh, as quite pointed and quite directional. Um, not to say that there's not uh, there's still a lot of ambiguity in it, um, uh, and I don't want to over literalize it. But for me, things did come into focus sharply. Uh, and I think he's always he's always dealing with belief belief systems, and this was um, to me uh, a quite American belief, uh, and, and and sort of the construction of this uh, American propensity and American yeah. activities all the way. Through. I mean, there's mm -hmm. a teacher from aircraft carrier. There Vietnam. There's a portrait of Muhammad Ali. Uh, all of these things, after a while, coalesced for me. And this is, um, yeah, the, the detective, I guess. But Mark, did you, did you feel a particular aesthetic sensation in this work? Was it, did it, did it uh, please you, antagonize you, excite you, revolt you? I mean, apart from Uma Thurman. <laughs> no, I... I I thought it was interesting as a fortress. I, I, uh, I thought of it, for me, the, the most important clue was the Fort Comanche, which is a childhood, I mean, a child's game, this little child, this little toy. And seeing that and the Donald Duck character uh, juxtaposed with a, a squalid fortress, uh, I thought that was quite a strong mm -hmm. sensation, actually. And the, um, the, the way, 
stuff that really only looks good if it ever looks good when it's brand new has degraded. Mm. Is, there, is, there, is there a real feeling that we all have, uh, you know, crappy sinks and little showers and the stuff that the ticky-tacky stuff that's in a trailer, that when it's new in the showroom has a kind of plastic gleam, you know, and is alive, but it doesn't last very long and it very quickly becomes this sort of sour, desperate-seeming, gray, browny, dirty thing. Uh, and to make a fortress with that color and that sensation in it, with, you know, he didn't put, I thought one thing that was interesting, he didn't put a lot of objects in there. So the no, objects the that are there uh, have a kind of intensity about them. Most mm -hmm. installation artists who work with this kind of material, they tend to really crowd in the mm -hmm. stuff. This was really pretty empty. Uh, and so the individual clues had a sort of strangely luminous uh, quality in this de degraded envi environment. So I thought, I, 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 I quite liked it. As, and I liked, I liked the fact that you had to, um, to search something out. Uh, very often with politically inspired installation art, it all just seems a blaring message to me. And whether I agree with the message or not, I just don't really care yes. uh, mm -hmm. at all. But the fact that you had to work here a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, that it, it continued to unfold. The fortress thing was not immediately mm -hmm. clear to me. It came to me later. I, I, I thought it was alive as a work of art. So I, I, I liked it. Yeah, yeah. Michel, um, a final word on the show? Did you? What was the final mood that it left you in? Well, I, I sort of what you are saying it made me think of Buckminster Fuller as you know possessed mm -hmm. by Repo Man or something like that. I mean, that was my sort of take on this um, this notion of actually making the body feel or the body of the viewer feel mm. um, quite oppressed within the structure. And even if one was sort of reading all of this um, evidence as evidence of a narrative or of a literary sort of um, story mm. behind it, I think for me the strongest feeling was that of um, a bodily sensation, which is to say sculptural. Um, and, yes. and that was quite interesting to me, actually. Yeah. I, I had mentioned Keenholz, but also I'm, I'm realizing, listening to, to the two of you speak, and it registers true with my experience of it, that it's a bit like being in those early works of Robert Morris or Bruce exactly. Rahman, which uh, right. hem in on you. But it's, it's that mixed with that... Um, Poetics of squalor that comes from Keen Holtz and all goes and much, much further back. Other California funk. I mean, yes. uh, mm -hmm. Bruce Connor and uh, and Jess and, and. But it also makes you feel like in a Sickert painting as well. If you go back to <laughs> uh, to, to uh, Nelson's native tradition, excellent. Well, moving to a very different mode of installation uh, to to Joan Jonas, obviously. A veteran of, of performance and installation and video um, and its interactions with dance. Um, this is a work uh, that's had earlier manifestations um, but uh, uh, and continues a, a fascination she has with, with Dante. Um, David, um, how did it work? How did it, how 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 did we negotiate the space with Nelson? There seemed to be, you could go one way or the other. You could go around once or as many times as you liked. But um, 
It was uh, almost a policed aesthetic sensation. Um, with Jonas, it feels a little, would you agree with me, a little maybe more old school in its uh, sense of scatter, in, in um, uh, sort of classic installation, if you like. Is that... Um, uh, well, it's classic Joan Jonas, uh, or ex ex extended classic Joan. I mean, it's, it takes a long time to, to perceive that, that work, especially in installation form. If she's performing, everything's tied together by the performance and, and things operate differently. But in an installation situation, there's a language that she's been developing for a long time over many, many, many pieces. And, um, and those parts, for me, didn't come into focus. I mean, I was in there for two hours before they really, I could connect everything. Um, it's, all, it, it's like a lot of her work is really drawing-based. Um, uh, drawing holds everything together. I thought the most effective parts of it were the, were the um, you know, drawing, drawing white on black, the, yes. the, and then the video going into that, and video images coming out of that. Um, but uh, it did, it did come together for me in the end. Uh, and this lang, this lang I settled into this language. Mm -hmm. um, there's been a lot. I mean, people have talked about a private language. I don't, I don't believe there is such a thing as a private language. Language is public, and I think she would say the same thing. She uh, that in developing this vocabulary, um, it's, a, it's a public vocabulary. It's not unique to her aesthetic. Yes. But it, um, it takes quite a while to, to settle into it. Yes. Uh, Michelle, we get a use of different surfaces, different supports, different technologies. It's almost like we're in history of video room in that we got a, a monitor, we got a projection, we've got an animation. Um, how do these different textures work for you? Did it did it did you feel that there were that each one was appropriate to the um, content of that medium or did you feel that it was uh, a gratuitous uh, mix of mediums or did it add to a sense of drama for it for you? Well I do think that the dispersal of drawing across all these different media was interesting as a form of animation because she's obviously always been very interested in this notion of a um, either a serial image or um, an image a graphic image that's being um, erased and redrawn in real time so I thought that was interesting to witness um, among the various um, projection technologies but it did seem to me it was very hermetic I mean I saw the performa piece and I I and you know, admire of her work throughout its history, but it did seem at times like this was sort of um, ancillary to the performance, or that these the videos and the films were in a way um, I don't know. I don't know if they added as much um, as I was expecting or hoping for mm -hmm. to the to the live performance itself. Um, did you did you see any of the live performance? I saw the performa, the reading right. Dante at performa. Yeah. So, but I think what what is interesting is that there were also um, sculptural elements and this sort of neon light piece as well. Yes. I mean, that was 
and also the use of sound in the space was she's always obviously paid a lot of attention to that as well and I think as you move through the installation um, there is a very interesting experience of the different types of um, oral or acoustic um, shifting um, parameters as you're walking around. So I thought that was interesting too. But again, I'm not, I don't know, I'm not sure if the narrative to me, I mean, I stayed there for quite a while too, and it did seem um, opaque in a way that I'm not sure, I don't know. I'm not sure I, I totally got it. <laughs> well, me too. I, 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 uh, I worked very hard on this one because I was going to be here. Um, I think I wouldn't have worked as hard if I wasn't going to be here. But I spent uh, more than an hour trying to sort of puzzle it uh, through. And I watched other people come in and out of the gallery and nobody else was doing that. I mean, people would come in for a moment really or maybe three or four minutes at most and then leave. And I wonder if that's not saying something about the, whether this is successful as an installation. I think people were not hitting on it really. I can well imagine that it was a, a very successful performance in real time with real people, but it was very difficult for me to, um, to engage with it, uh, except in a dutiful way. And I also had, uh, there, there's a, something that happens when, when artists use a great work of art like yes. uh, Dante that is very, in my view, dangerous, which is that what, the strongest feeling I had, I took away from this, and I'm an, I'm an, an admirer of hers, uh, a long-standing admirer, but the strongest feeling I took away was, I really want to read Dante again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's been decades since I have, and the little, the, the, little, the, the little bits of, of, uh, of uh, mm -hmm. Dante that are there, the readings. Uh, well, they seem so concise, tight, uh, <laughs> uh, visionary, beautiful, and I just thought, oh, I want to go there. And maybe that's not the impression that um, um, I should be taking from... Maybe it's not suitable to a Chelsea experience, because in Chelsea, this was, <laughs> we, we build a, a speed. I mean, you commendably you broke that pattern and spent an hour there. But uh, we, Chelsea is, 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 is not friendly to uh, one hour of savoring of, of work. Whereas uh, last night I had the amazing privilege to, to see the last night of uh, uh, The Nose at the Metropolitan Opera, um, where Kentridge, uh, you know, you're sitting in a $100 seat, so you're certainly going to pay attention and give him and Shostakovich uh, the time they're demanding. and. Um, it's well rewarding, uh, well rewarded. But mm -hmm. um, there is a highly masterful marshalling of uh, means, uh, uh, but it's also um, it, it's 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 also it's wild a bit, like like Jonas, and uh, but it's uh, but it's also very well, you know it's I, very I, it has to be by by virtue of the medium um, faithful to the to the work, or or, or at least at least. Um, in, in very direct relationship to the work. I, I almost felt, to be honest, and I, I, I do adore Dante, and I, I had an obsession with uh, Dante and the visual arts for, for um, about 20 years ago. Um, I, I didn't pick up much Dante. I, mean, I heard Pat Steer mm. intoning mm. Dante for a few minutes and thought, oh, that's fun, there's Pat Steer. But um, I didn't really feel there's Dante. Well, you could see the riff, some riffs on, on some of the imagery there. I mean, the, the, the famous thing about the grasping the... the yes. The, the, she works with that. Um, but it does seem like a riff, a kind of casual riff on a, on a very great world image, you know? Yes, she just joined, David, a very illustrious line, going back to Botticelli or further, of um, artists taking on Dante. Yeah. 
I mean, I think there's a, it's a very strange relation to the animating text um, in this, and I felt that it was, it didn't really illuminate the text, it was more uh, seeing it as a, breaking it down into raw mm -hmm. speech, which right. is not totally inappropriate with Dante. Yes, he invents Italian, of yeah, course. But it's, uh, it, it, it's, I found it a, uh, more so than the HD work that she did uh, I saw the, the performance that, um, at Dia Beacon, uh, and that was, to me, a high point. Um, and it, the time was so different, I mean, it, because it lasted for two hours, but, you were, but the performance moved you uh, and moved the uh, animated, animated images around um, and gave it a, um, a cohesion that uh, the, the installation hmm. probably couldn't have. Um, but she's dealing with these elements over and over again, and they come up in different ways, and she deals with them um, in, in all these different media. Uh, but the, perform, the performances, even film performance doesn't do that right. thing with time. So. You know, I think time is, a, is the great difficulty for installation artists very mm -hmm. often. How they organize, and, and that live performance, just the bodies there, and the fact that there has to be some... Uh, acknowledgement of theater and of, of uh, some sort of narrative feeling that's structuring time. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, people just get angry and, and they don't pay attention, they tune out. How you do that in a, in a, in a room when, which is trying to depict what was uh, occurring in real time and how you organize that space uh, so that people don't just come in and browse for a moment and leave, I don't know. I mean, it's very, very, very tricky, and it's yeah. very, very difficult. And so often, uh, these installations seem like a residue of a performance, you know? Yes, uh, souvenir shop for the, yeah. for the uh, right. And to, to, to be able to rethink it and remake it as a new work of art is obviously the trick, but it's, yeah. it's very And really Michelle, isn't that to some extent, by giving you uh, four or five um, uh, performances simultaneously in these different formats, isn't 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 there a sense in which you're you're being given uh, an intentional overload and actually being discouraged from uh, following one of those strands at a time? And do you think if she had her ideal, she'd have it in five separate rooms, or or, or do you think she actually likes uh, having this environment where uh, you're enveloped by a, 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 like a mesh of of happenings? Well, I think she was probably quite intentionally putting together things in a non-narrative way so that you don't just watch one thing from start to finish. Your attention is dispersed among different um, images. But I always thought that her best work was really about, it was always about duration or about the structure of a medium. So for instance, when she really, in her canonical video works, she was really exploring repetition and time as you experience it. Um, in the medium of video, and that that actually, um, in a way, it was a very punishing visual experience because you were made to sit there and um, watch often very repetitive actions or um, her toying with the video camera or the or the tape. So to me, this kind of installation after a performance, it didn't sort of touch on those same um, same mm -hmm. issues with the same strength uh, because it just I don't know. It didn't affect me in the same in the same way. Um, it wasn't as it, strong an interrogation of certain constraints like video or time. Right. 
I really, I, I mean, I appreciate the, the new, the work that Jonas is doing now in that it, it, uh, it attempts at least to uh, deal with our current communications environment, our current spect spectacle and short attention span and all that. And, and with a generosity that she's asking of, of viewers, uh, certainly in installations even more than the, perform the, the big performances that, um, but it, I think you are rewarded, but it's asking a lot. And I think in a, in a Chelsea gallery, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know, what would they say the average time is a minute and a half or something? It's, it's very, if you, if you can't stop people right. in their tracks, um, it's very difficult. But Nelson did stop people or us. Well, he put us in a track. I put you in it, yes. Yeah. yeah. And and I think if you go to MoMA, Kentridge is really arresting people. Uh, obviously, MoMA isn't Chelsea, but um, I think uh, on the, that in, in precisely in our collective ADD that a, a, a film with narrative structure uh, is, is going to have an, um, uh, a shortcut to attention that... Um, this very kind of happenings, 60s, uh, 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 experimental, in quotes, uh, environment that uh, Jonas is working with, I feel, I felt was sort of a, almost a vintage experience. It sort of belonged mm. to uh, the generation before I was born looking at art, mm. um, or as I was born, actually. Um, well, let's have, let's have some response to both those installations, uh, Nelson and Jonas, from... Um, our audience, and we have a roving mic, uh, so so please wait for it so that it can be amplified and recorded. But don't allow either of those phenomena to intimidate the free flow of ideas. So um, who, let's 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 do it one show at a time, and let's start with Jonas, as that was the uh, one we just talked about. Anybody got some comments uh, on on their experience of Joan Jonas? Um, okay, well, we'll go, we'll go on to Nelson, and if you're suddenly in he the does. course of... Ah, yes, there's a gentleman. Yeah. Just in terms of time, I just wanted to say that it was nice to see an older artist for a change and someone who has been building on one vocabulary for a long time, and then the way that she layered it, I felt like it honestly stopped me for a long time, and I just enjoyed spending time in there and even if I couldn't get Dante out of it directly it felt like it was focused enough and layered enough that it was rewarding to stay in there and I felt like it's nice to see an artist of maturity even if she was working from the 60s into the present in that in Chelsea where I feel like there's just so much hype around like youth and novelty and and uh, inexperience right. and how about Mike Nelson then um, what, what, did you, what did the audience pick up from the clues in the Mike Nelson, and what mood did they come out with from that labyrinth of terrorist trailers? <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, not, not a yes, yes, uh, Marshall? Um, well, I, I don't think that you all mentioned this, but I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that the trailers actually 
move in something of a chronological sequence. I think the first trailer you enter is from the 1930s or something, and the next one's from the 1940s, and, and so on. So I, I sort of felt like, when you were talking about a, a narrative uh, element in the piece, and um, I felt very much that that was leading me to some sort of climax in the last trailer, which I believe was from the 1970s. So uh, it's just interesting, I think, to think about it in that, um, in that regard. Yeah, that, I totally missed that, that myself, I must confess. Excellent. Uh, good. Well, let's move on to painting. And our next two shows are Robert Ryman at Pace Waldenstein and Anya Keeler at Rachel Ufner. So, Ufner in the Lower East Side. In Chelsea, we were kind to you this month and gave you two galleries in the same street. You know what? Um, let's put the lights back on. If you don't mind, I think we're going to talk about the rhyme and then see the video for uh, Keeler and go back to her. So, um, so that the visuals are more present. Um, usually, one one sighs and uh, apologizes for showing a video rather than a PowerPoint for painting uh, because one wants to be able to see the painting, see the picture. Um, and yet here I feel, perhaps it's a, thanks to uh, George Smith's excellent uh, camera work, but I feel actually that um, what Ryman is doing and what Ryman is about vindicates reproducing it uh, in, in motion rather than statically. Um, uh, strong sensation in the show of um, the sum being greater than the individual parts, not to say that the parts are not individually savoured in the way they're put together, um, but um, I, I, I concur with the artist himself when he says, I'm not a picture painter, I work with real light and space, and since real light is an important aspect of the paintings, it always presents some problems. Um, Mark, did you find yourself lingering with individual paintings um, 
as discrete sensations, or did you find whenever you were with one painting, you were thinking very much of the one you saw just before and how it relates to a different, uh, how it is perhaps a, a different solution to the same problem as the one before? I would say I did both. I love this show. I thought that um, uh, the video was a torment to watch, in fact. Um, uh, because it, it, I, I, not, it's no fault of the person who, ha who held the camera. But really, this is one of those shows that you, you just absolutely, it's, it's illegible if you don't actually see it oh, in, yeah. in person. And I, what I, I, I thought that the, um, what entranced me was that these individually, as well as the collective, they all seemed to me as alive as animals. I mean, you would, uh, the perceptual changes that occurred in each image as you move just a few inches from one, there's, there's one that when, when you just came right in, that had two uh, sort of floating rectangles. And if you look at it straight on in the, in the way it's lit, you couldn't see those rectangles. You move a few inches this way, you begin to see them. Now, why does that matter? Does that matter? Is that just a perceptual trick? It's a perceptual trick in a way. However, they're also, I thought, individually, beautifully composed, the way the edges are done, the way the, the uh, paint, uh, if it is, I mean, some of it is this new material, uh, mm. the, the way it's layered um, is, it creates a kind of stability, uh, a strength in the, in the, in the rectangle that, that allows for that perceptual shifting to occur in a, in a strong space, a strong place. So individually, I like them. And then as a collective, as you say, you feel like, like the, all these eyes uh, mm. that are constantly shifting and looking at you. So I, I thought it was a very interesting show and uh, not just a, a trick as I, as, mm. as I, you might, it is precious in a way, you know, I mean, there's, you can make that argument. In the precious. reduction, did you, was well, preciousness, Michelle, the um, overriding quality of your experience? No, I mean, I think he has always shown that in fact, instead of a sort of precious modernist project, his work is precisely the opposite, which is to show how arbitrary those conventions of modernist painting are. And here it was pushed to even another level with the use of Tyvek and all of these um, different types of material. I thought that that was quite interesting um, in the sense that it's not about uh, reducing painting to um, a support or certain kinds of conventional structures, but it's to show that even working within these very strict parameters, you're always branching out into new materials and new, um, new kinds of structures that uh, there is no sort of essential medium to adhere to. So I thought it was very experimental in that regard. Mm -hmm. um, and if a lot of sort of readings of Ryman are always about um, the process, which is to say that you can reduce the work to sort of um, the addition of multiple elements, or this is what he did, and so that's what the work is about. But this show, if anything, proved that it's really the reception or the, the mode of viewing that mm. constitutes the work, that, ex that experience, and that, as you say, it's, it's greater than the sum of those parts, so. I was blown away by the show. One of the, one of the tests of art that I've always had is um, that it actually changes the way I see when I leave, and as you get older, it becomes harder and harder for uh, art to do that. Yes. Uh, I was looking at them like this. <laughs> <laughs> you had your 3D glasses on. 
but I mean, if you, yeah. you've seen so much that it's it's more difficult mm -hmm. for something to. And this was against great odds. I thought I knew Ryman. I thought mm -hmm. I couldn't be moved. Mm -hmm. uh, I just uh, couldn't believe it. Um, everything in that room is intentional. Nothing is compensatory. Uh, every the, the I mean, talking about installation. The, this entire space was act was alive, was activated to the point where you're looking at the please don't disturb sign on the uh, on the uh, detector. Uh, there was a, a man in the room. Uh, I, I don't know what he was doing there, but he was always there reading a Bible. Uh, he he became <laughs> a part of it. Uh, he was sent there by Ryman to remind people that he's from Tennessee. Uh, yeah, you know? exactly. I just, and he tells you exactly in the title what, what he's going to do. It's about uh, these surfaces, and it's about light reflected and light, uh, and it's, it's all about light. Um, and uh, I, I could spend days in that, in that room and not mm. exhaust um, the, the possibilities for, for seeing, for actually looking at, at something and seeing what's really there and what's, and what's happening with, uh, yeah. with the perception. I fantasized having one of them and how wonderful it would be to, sure. to see it just change every, mm -hmm. during every moment of the day, mm -hmm. you know, uh, in, as the light shifted, mm -hmm. uh, while not being just a trick, you know, again. Yeah. And, uh, it, it, it is an amazing, and the room also, you know, in con contrast to so many of those minimalist installations, which seem kind of nailed in, you know, mm -hmm. uh, boom, boom, boom. There's a, a kind of haphazard, almost, uh, but not, floating quality to the installation. That, you know, it just, it's not like what I've seen very often in an installation. It's bizarre for me that an artist who uh, is non-objective and who has reduced his palette to one color, which is arguably not a color, uh, just springs a surprise with every show, and it seems yeah. to be almost a reinventing himself as an artist from show to show, and 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 um, oscillating as well, or ricocheting from from one extreme to the other. Because his last show there was was very very uh, tight, minimal, conceptual, difficult, austere show that was uh, very very uh, hermetically clever. Uh, the show before downtown in Chelsea was uh, almost Ryman reinventing himself as a a neo-romantic with uh, these, actually with color, but underneath the, the painting, uh, underneath the white, um, pushing it forward. And, and here he was in, in a very different mode again. I think because there is no one color, I mean, white for him is a huge continuum and infinite. Exactly. Like snow for Eskimos, 50 words, <laughs> right. right? Yes. Well, that's the <laughs> But the question actually that sprang to mind was if this did, I mean, in what ways did it differ from simply Rauschenberg's white paintings where the point uh -huh. was to have this kind of receptacle or a surface on which shadows and dust would alight and that was you know, the interest of that piece. Mm -hmm. Obviously Ryman is kind of, he's always been working in, in opening up painting to that condition too, but he also, he also does make very pointed reference to different kinds of materials and support. So, that, I feel like, was one way in which he's moved beyond that, but yeah. I don't know. Does anybody know what spun-bound Oli 
it's all, I mean, what Tyvek is made out of, what? It's a fiber, it? olefin I think it's the fiber that makes up, that is woven into what Tyvek. we call Tyvek, or what is yeah. trademarked Tyvek. Tyvek. Yeah. Yeah. I know what Tyvek yeah. is. But the olefin I think is that, yeah, is that fiber, so. But yeah, it's a synthetic fiber. Yes, mm. all synthetic. And, yeah. Well, it may have some natural ingredient somewhere, but all synthetic things do. But the I things mean, where he's painting on both sides, and it completely changes it depending <coughs> on again the angle of incidence of the light and the type of light. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just it's and your endless. movement and your and your movement. And you, yeah. you're in the painting. Yeah. You can't not be in the painting. Um, right. Which is the, well, the video I think helps accentuate that we wouldn't get from a nice JPEG. Um, okay, well, let's have, also, we would, um, our last show. Let's see the work of Anya Kila at Rachel Atma. Uh, David, uh, as, as author of books titled From Head to Hand and Between the Eyes, I imagine you must have felt at home in an exhibition with titles like uh, Navy Blue Eye, Yellow Eye, Tan Nose, and Lavender Mouth. Um, it's very no. much, <laughs> very much a, uh, quite a distance not only from the Upper East Side or upper uh, midtown east side to the lower east side but culturally quite a distance as well between um, uh, Ryman and Keeler um, what could you make of this show well you know I uh, in, um, Clint Eastwood in the in uh, I guess it was unforgiven where he he shoots like nine people and then he says afterwards I was lucky in the order um, she was un unlucky in this order, seeing it after Ryman. I, uh, for me, it was all compensatory um, and mostly arising from a lack of commitment. I mean, I found that the, the color was compensatory for the lack of formal uh, inventiveness in the, in the forms. I found that the sand uh, in the color was compensatory for the lack of uh, vibrancy of the color the fact that the, um, the pieces, the eyes, nose, mouth, were uh, formed into faces uh, was compensatory for the fact that the individual forms were not strong enough. I mean, I did think of, of Joan, Jonas, the fact that she, coming out of minimalism, 
and one of the things that she got from that was a strong sense of form that has served her very well. Uh, and then the Ryman, where there's no, everything is intentional, there's nothing compensatory. And I think that it's a problem when you get to, when you find, when the work is telling you that you're, you're making compensatory gestures for what's not there, it's a, it's a very dangerous place to be. Um, yeah. I'd also just seen Kentridge's nose right, uh, right before, and that uh, disembodied nose I thought had more character and more life and more, uh, and was more animated than, than any of these. Uh, oh yeah. These noses stink, do they? Okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, Mark, uh, is David missing something in the show? Is there some whimsy that uh, and delicacy that uh, would would spring to mind that you want to defend? Well, my my immediate I had very little reaction initially, and I so I worked again to try to to um, to find something. Um, and what I liked was uh, there's a sort of poignancy in this ongoing effort to to uh, make human materials that are not very human and colors <laughs> that are not very lifelike. So that uh, people like Eva Hesse and people like that, you know, working with strange stuff and trying to make it, uh, give it a, a life that's a, a, a kind of human life. That's what she seems to me to be uh, concerned with. Um, she uses sand, which is of course a mm -hmm. classical medium, but, but then she uses these very, very bright uh, artificial colors. Yes. Um, she uses uh, forms that are, well, I'm, I, that's about it. I, I, I thought that uh, that particular effort, effort is mm -hmm. one that interests me, historically yes. and otherwise. But I didn't have that much reaction pro or con. Uh, right. Really. Right. The show. Michelle, uh, I, I was intrigued by this show because um, I, I'd somehow missed her, but uh, she's been fated in, in uh, the press and uh, uh, as a sort of recent Columbia graduate who uh, seems to have been somebody who could uh, do no wrong. Um, and, and yet, um, well, quite apart from the merits or otherwise of the individual works, I've, I, I was kind of um, nonplussed by the installation in, in a gallery where I've seen both as the Rachel Uffner Gallery and its predecessor when it was a cooperative for some years uh, on down on Orchard Street, I'd seen people make uh, brilliant and inventive use of that forbiddingly uh, long and narrow space. And yet here I felt it was almost like student work in a, in a sort of gift shop of some sort. But um, will you spring to the defense of... Uh, uh, well, I have to say, I'm, I'm myself on the fence, but I did wonder, is it so bad that it's good? I mean, it was it was a little bit like seeing the Ashley Bickerton for me, where mm. I, recently at Lehman Melbourne, I guess it was actually almost a year ago, but it's so intensely, the colors are so over the top in their kitschiness, as are the forms and mm -hmm. the kind of um, iconography that, to me, it can't, it must be a pastiche of some kind, and is that interesting? I'm not totally sure, but... Um, it did, to me, it, it had to be quite an intentional flirtation with the boundaries of mm -hmm. bad taste, and that mm -hmm. is, it still remains interesting, at least to me. Um, well, the one that certainly um, seems to spell an intentional um, vulgarity is the, 
is the screen, quite apart right. from its title, boob, eye, and hand job. Um, the the oh, I missed the that. sheer thanks, uh, thanks for sharing <laughs> the sheer tackiness of a being a screen, b being multicolored. I mean, compared to it, the rest of the works I thought were actually just very polite essays in um, uh, almost like a sort of Cubist sculpture. Um, uh, if, if, if that's that's they they didn't seem vulgar to me enough. Um, that neither vulgar nor finessed, but but rather sort of academic. Um, so, uh, um, why why do you uh, you've you've been following her career a little better than some of us maybe? Why why do you feel why do people rate her so highly? What, what what's what's her, what's what she considered good for? Well, I'm I'm not sure about the critical reception at large, but for instance, seeing her, um, she was part of this group show at White Columns. Um, that primary information curated and seeing her in that context did make more sense than perhaps this uh, this installation, um, the solo installation. But at White Columns, for example, you saw her near a Kai Altoff video and a zine um, or a Peter Coffin piece that was made of actually um, highly pigmented um, sort of powder that, that actually resonated very well with her work. Um, so in that sense, I did I did feel that she... She's clearly um, referencing or sort of communicating with uh, with bad painting, with um, sort of these, uh, I guess, intentionally um, kitschy forms. And the question is now, pastiche is just as common as um, as non-pastiche. So what what do you do from that very postmodern yes. standpoint? Like how how so do you go about from the there? The tradition of intentionally bad work. Right, exactly. But, you know, to say that, like, for instance, Wade Guyton riffs yeah, on the monochrome. There must be a chronology. There, well, right? I mean, yeah. bad painting, obviously, is a... So, Kippenberger, yeah, yeah. Albert no, no, Olin. No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this, this trajectory is something where um, uh, a parodic take... Mm. But what I'm saying is now a parodic take is just as commonplace as exactly. a non-parodic take or a self-reflexive take. It out-of-the-box parodic take. Exactly. Yeah. So I, that's why I'm saying I'm still on the fence, but I did at least find that aspect. So um, the only way you can make bad painting now is to make good painting. <laughs> Potentially, yes. <laughs> the only way you can make bad painting is to not know in your own heart whether you're trying to make a good painting or a bad painting. That's well, I mean, she also clearly is, you know referencing types of decoration mm. and you know this the use of the screen that's something that mm -hmm. or the theatrical mask which she's used in other yes. pieces as well these are very low marginal mm. forms and so mm -hmm. i think that has to be part of part of the project but you know we all, we all loved uh, robert ryman's painting um but at a certain level um he's he's playing a rather insolent game with quality isn't he i mean these are not um he's not Easily sitting within uh, uh, finessed, uh, reductive, uh, abstract painting. He, he's not somebody that you really go to for the same quality of reward that you might get from Mondrian or Malevich or from uh, such contemporaries as um, Mangold or even, say, Morris, um, uh, Robert Morris or somebody. Um, you know, we're, 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 we're always. There's always the sense, I feel, with Ryman, to go back to Ryman, um, that um, uh, there's, there's, there's an element of the joker here. It's a, but it's, a, mm. it's a, a particularly perverse joke because, say, unlike uh, 
Duchamp or Picabia um, or their myriad um, disciples of the last 30 or 40 years. Here's somebody whose um, joke um, is within this very uh, highbrow, uh, tight arena of, of monochrome. Mm, I don't know. I mean, I think Malevich is the right place, but uh, I think he's dead serious. And I think he's making it up new every time. He does, I, He does though, I, I agree with you, he, he does have a, there is some aspect of, of joke in him, but hmm. he's, it's, it's a joke that he takes very seriously. <laughs> it's that he, he, yeah, he knows... There's not humor, but... It's not humor. He knows that he's, he's playing and that people will talk about it as sort of an end of painting game, you know. Uh, he's painted himself into a corner and he's having a wonderful, all, those, all that kind of stuff, right? The way he, he doesn't just be that uh, is sort of fascinating to me, that, that he, he elicits immediately those thoughts, um, precious and but he's not that, you know? He, he, doesn't, he doesn't end there. And I think there's a kind of joke, a sly joke there, uh, mm. that it seems conceptual and, and a, a jokey conception, but it's not. And I agree with you. He's, Completely serious. I mean, uh, everything, uh, everything, all the materials, all the grounds, all the supports, uh, are things that you can pick up in a trash pile at any construction uh, site. In that way, it's not. And, and you pick those things up and make something extraordinary. Um, but if you well, describe it, you can't. I mean, it's not. It sounds like. Sounds like it's easy to do. Yes, yeah. like, and like it's mm. a conceptually driven, uh, historically minded thing. But it, like yes. the, in the experience, is not that. No, it's a material it. investigation. I mean, yeah. he's been called, I think, the last modernist painter, and I think with good reason because he's pushing all of those conventions to an extreme. And it's, I think, the hyperbo the hyperbolic aspect of what he's doing is where maybe this this joke aspect comes in because he is always really sort of going beyond the pale in this mm. way that could. You know, Beyond the pale, in pale. In yes. pale, well, right, <laughs> no pun intended, but right. um, it, is, it leads to this use of very arbitrary materials or materials that come from very unexpected sources. He's a, tr he's a truly radical artist, which means you go back to the roots. And mm -hmm. when, you can g when you can do that, when you can go back to those roots, then you can make it all happen again. Right. It's an incredible thing. Go back to your roots, ladies and gentlemen. But before you do, <laughs> before you do, share with us any comments you have on the last two shows that we've... Um, been reviewing. Uh, wait for the mic, but yes, please. Uh, marvelous. The thing that struck me when I went into the Ryman show was the light on the walls and how that seemed to be so um, important not only to the pieces, to be able to see them through this reflected light that was suffused so that things could... Um, not be sort of disturbed by spots, uh, spots of light, but also that it became another aspect of the show. In other words, when you were talking about the space being activated, um, but also it made the space where the paintings were hanging darker. So it set up a question in my mind, which I think um, we're getting to about this joke about what's happening when we're looking at the artwork. Because the conditions that were set up in which to do that were so unusual. Mm -hmm. And then it seemed like also 
um, the sort of casual quality of many of the pieces were making me ask, you know, what is the, the nature of this, the individual thing that we, that we are looking at? Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's thoughtful work that, that seems to elicit very thoughtful responses. Thank you very much. Um, uh, Marshall again, yes? Um, I think what you're getting at is, is exactly what Ryman wants you, um, where, where he wants you to go with it. And Michelle, I think what you were saying about uh, reception and perception is entirely accurate. Um, he's dead serious. I, I don't think there's any joke here. You know, I uh, was fortunate enough to see the paintings in the studio before they were hung in the gallery. And um, they were hung in this space that's this beautiful, clean studio with uh, track lighting. And um, I saw them with direct light on them and then with the reflected light because the artist was working out just exactly how they were gonna be illuminated in the space. And I have to say that even though they looked fantastic in the gallery, they looked even better in his studio because they were lit exactly as, exactly how he wanted it to be illuminated. So he's a master of nuance. I mean, you know, he wants us to see the infinite, I think, in, in this reductive white square. Um, and as you alluded to, David, I mean, he keeps sort of pushing the envelope. Excellent. Yes, please. When I saw the film, uh, it reminded me of another video that I had seen about the Matisse Chapel in Vence, where Matisse had all of the uh, ceramics, they were all white, made by hand in a particular place. And what he wanted was a finish that was so um, uh, reflective that during the day, because there was a window outside, the light would come in and on these big outlines of forms that he paint, painted, these um, tiles would have a life of their own. And then the video, what was so neat about this particular video, it showed all of that happening. And it even showed a child in a mass running around trying to catch the light. <laughs> <laughs> That's how involved it was. And when I saw those surfaces there on the video, I could see the people this is what you were saying at the beginning about how the video was important for that work, or I, I felt it was. I could see, all of a sudden I felt like, oh, there's the, there are the people, and you could look at yourself, they're kind of mirror-like, and all this kind of stuff, you could pick it up, and so it seems similar. Thank you. Thank you very much for the comment, and also thank you for your wonderful uh, work on the uh, PowerPoint, uh, on, the, on the projection. It just remains for me to thank you all for coming and to remind you that our next and the last, uh, the season finale uh, in the review panel, is uh, April 23rd when Robert Storr, Roberta Smith, and Svetlana Alpers join me to review the Whitney Biennial. So see you then. <laughs> <laughs>